0: Snow, you're here. Got a nice fresh layer of white. Isn't it great? Don't you love it? Yeah, just the way it's supposed to be in northern Ohio in January, right? Well, I'm glad that you're here. Are you ready as we continue in John? Okay, we're, we're, think about this. Most popular book in the world, most popular book inside the most popular book of the world is the book of John, written by one of Jesus's three closest disciples, probably the youngest disciple, the disciple who outlives the martyrdom of all the other disciples. And now he's writing. He probably had access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And now he's writing John, and he's filling in some of the gaps, and he's just sharing some things that maybe they didn't share. Uh, some of it's the same, but there's a lot more differences in John because he's including things that the other guys didn't mention and we've already talked about uh, how the book opened we did that at Christmas that the word became flesh we talked about how his first miracle was in Cana and he turned water into wine at that wedding and then he came we say down but they say up to Jerusalem because it's uphill up in the hill country came to Jerusalem entered the temple cleared the temple had a conversation with a religious leader at the pinnacle of religious leadership named Nicodemus. Basically tells Nicodemus, hey, all your religious striving is not going to work. You need new life. You need to be born again. He leaves there and then heads back to Galilee, the northern region of Israel. He goes through Samaria where a lot of Jews would go around that because they were... Uh, people that they felt were inferior. He meets the woman at the well. She believes, and because of her testimony and a challenge to her village, they all believe. Luke talked about that last week. And now Jesus gets back to Cana where he started with that first miracle. It's back there, and that's kind of where we pick it up. And we're going to pick it up. We're going to try to cover a lot today, so are you with me? All right, we're going to try to get the end of chapter 4 and all of chapter 5. We'll try to get it in. So here's what happens. Here's what I'll be talking about. Jesus heals two people. We're going to look at both of those. And then we're going to see three different responses to what he does. So that's what's happening. And first of all is we all respond to God differently. We all have a choice to make. And first we're going to talk about responding with belief. And this is the healing of the noble man's son. And that starts in John Chapter 4, beginning with 46. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. And by the way, there's a lot of up and down, like I mentioned. We think of up and down as north and south, but in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's mainly uphill and downhill. Capernaum is right on the northern shore of, of the Sea of Galilee, which is actually below sea level. Capernaum is actually below sea level. So it's always down to Capernaum and up to Cana, even though they're both in the region of Galilee, and then up even higher to Jerusalem. Sorry I even told you that. You don't even need to know that. All right. So where am I? Yeah, let's get back on track here. So this royal official um, has a son who's sick. And so he's a royal official probably from Herod's court, Herod's the guy that, about this time in history, is beheading John the Baptist. But uh, Herod's got a court. This guy's an official in it. But basically, here he's a desperate dad, right? His son is sick. His son's about to die in Capernaum. And I don't know. We all uh, probably have experienced loss. And there's pain that goes with that. There's probably no pain like losing a child pain. And that's what this man is experiencing. And, uh, and some of you know how that feels and it's just terrible and so he is distraught. He's desperate. He's looking for answers. And when he had heard verse 47 when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son for he was at the point of death. So he rushes from near the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, to Cana, and he's begging Jesus, come heal my son, he's gonna die any minute. And we read this, but we probably it's good for us once we while all feel the emotion of it. You know, he and his wife, he, he's one of these guys, he's probably kind of has it made. He's a, a royal official, so money, status, that's not a problem. But his child is dying. There's nothing he can do about it. So he and his wife are are trying to do anything they can for their son. And and they're going through all that. But they've heard about Jesus and some of the miracles that he's done. And I always kind of picture this like one of those husband-wife interactions. I mean, he's sort of the type A, high-powered guy. But she's the wife going, hey, you've heard about this guy, Jesus? Yeah, I've heard about that guy. Go, he, he's up here now, go get Jesus, go get that man and bring that man here, kind of a deal. And so he's like, well, but you know, if I leave, our, our son could, go get that man and bring him here as fast as you can, kind of a deal. And so he, he does that and, and, you know, he's desperate. And, and a lot of us have experienced this, You're, we're desperate before God and so we're, we're sort of reaching out, hey God, I need help. What can you do? I need to turn this over to you. There's nothing I can do to fix this. I need you. So he goes there. He asks Jesus to heal his son, for he's at the point of death. And Jesus responds to this in Cana. And it sounds kind of harsh. And what's happening here is Jesus is not just responding to the man. We can tell this. We can tell it in English and Greek. That he's talking in the plural. But he, he's not just responding to the man. He's responding to the man and everybody else there. And he's challenging them to get beyond their immediate needs. Hey, this guy might be able to heal. That's going to solve a problem of mine. Maybe I could get this done. Try to get beyond what's happening today and see beyond the miracle take a step back and see the whole thing, hold it. If this guy can do miracles, what does that mean? Well, that means he must be from God. That means we should listen to what he has to say. That means some bigger implications for our life. That's what Jesus is challenging them. Here's what he says in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. So his response challenges all these people and a desperate dad To see Jesus as more than just a healer, verse 49. But the royal official, he's got the mission, right? He's just like, hey, the royal official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. We don't have time for theology. We don't have time for long conversations. Come now. And and the interesting thing here is that he's so confident. He is an official in Herod's court, no friend of Jesus. But he seems to be so confident. I got to get you to come. Come on. And why is he so confident? Well, it has to be because what he's heard about Jesus. And in that sense, he's kind of like all of us. Because everything we know about Jesus is what we've heard from somebody. Either a friend or somebody who introduced us to Jesus. Or when we go to the Bible, hey, we're, right now we're studying John. We want to hear what John, who walked with Jesus, has to say about Jesus. Same kind of deal. And so the royal official said to him, sir, come down before a child dies. And here, Jesus presents the man with kind of a dilemma because Jesus asks something of him. He presents him with a dilemma and meets his request. Jesus meets his request, but it's on Jesus' terms, not the man's terms. He asks the man, okay, trust me at my word, basically, is what's gonna happen. Verse 50 Jesus said to him, go. Your son lives. And the guy's like, what? Go. Go ahead. Go on. Your son lives. Hold it. You mean me go back to my wife and you're not even coming to heal him? You're just saying he's okay? I'm going to ride back to my wife and tell her you're not with me? There could be two deaths in the family if I did that. And she says, no, go. Your son lives. It's like a test. Think about this. Jesus forces the nobleman to make the difficult decision. It's a choice between insisting on evidence. No, I need you to come and do this. No, I need you to prove it to me. How do I know between insisting on evidence, which shows our disbelief. No, Jesus, you need to, you need to show me. It, it's got to be more than that. you got to give me something here. Which then just, it just shows our disbelief. Or we take Jesus at his word. This, or this man trusts Jesus. He exercises faith without any tangible proof at this point. To encourage him. And amazingly, the man responds well. But, But the thing is, that's where we live today in that tension, if you think about it. We're asked to trust in Jesus based on the witness and testimony of others. And God wants us to take, us, take him at, God wants us to take him at His word. And so we notice how that plays out in our life. We, we believe God, and then God says, He invites us to come and ask for good things in prayer, like a healing of a son. That's a good thing. He invites us to come and ask. But then we don't always get the answers that we want. And sometimes it's an answer where we're not seeing the good coming out of it. But Jesus is telling us, trust me. And while we're doing all that, we're living our lives in front of people around us, most of whom are not believers. And a lot of those people, they know of the circumstances we're in and they know as a believer what we're praying for and what we want and they're watching this play out in our life and they're seeing that we're not getting the answer that we want to get. And the question to us is to remember who's watching us? What people around us are watching and noticing how we're responding? Well, do we know? No, We don't really know. And how do we know That by watching us, somebody is not a week or a month or a year away from putting their faith in Christ because of what they see in our life. Well, we don't know that either. But we live in faith. God can take any mess in our life and turn it into a message. To the people around us. If we'll let him. Any mess. He can turn into a message if we let him. So the nobleman here. He makes a decision that changed his life. He takes Jesus at his word. He puts his trust in Jesus. The rest of verse 50 goes. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. And started off. And as he was now going down. His slaves met him saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour which he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus had said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. So here's how that breaks down. He takes Jesus at his word. He believes Jesus. But when he meets the servant who's coming to tell him good news on his way back home, now he believes at a deeper level. Oh, this happened. It not not only happened, it happened the moment Jesus said that to me yesterday. And all of a sudden, he's believing on a whole nother level. And because of that, he believes and his entire family believes in Jesus. The weird thing is, Not everyone responds, even to miracles, not everybody responds to God or to Jesus with belief. Sometimes, even people who have experienced the goodness of God, and they would even kind of see it that way the goodness of God, respond to Jesus with indifference, or, and indifference is always disbelief. And we see that next responding with rejection. So the next chapter begins, chapter five, verse one. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lame, and withered. And he's he's describing something. So now, back down south, but up to Jerusalem. He's there, and just outside the northern wall of the temple, but inside the wall of Jerusalem, there is a pool. It's actually still there today. Been there. You can go visit that. Uh, it looks a little different now. It's way deep because of all the years, but uh, they dug down to get it. But... And so he's there, and, and this is the pool of, of Bethesda, By the sheep gate. And what was happening there, it's a pool of five porticos or five colonnaded porches. We know by history this was a pool that was actually divided in two and there was a porch in the middle. So it's four on four sides, one in the middle, five porticos. And that pool was used then to run the, which already should be relatively clean, sacrificial sheep through the pool And then on the north side of the temple, go through the sheep's gate, a smaller gate that was mainly used for the sacrificial animals to enter into the temple grounds. And so that's what's happening. Now, if you're following along in your Bible, which you should be, you're going to notice something in this verse. At the end of verse 3, actually verse 3 ends where I stopped reading. But some of you may have a Bible where it continues and then it goes into verse 4. And some of you have a Bible where there is no verse 4. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. I'm going to explain that to you. Do you even want to know? This is kind of a side thing. All right. No. We can. Okay, yes. Okay, so here's what happened there. So back in history, they're writing the gospel. So the best, most ancient manuscripts of the first century, they don't have this verse 4. The verses were put on later. They're not really part of the Bible, but we just use that so we can find things. But there was that; those sentences weren't there, and so what we know happened is a a, a writer, a, a scribe, wrote in the margins something right there to explain why all these bl- lame and blind people were gathered around the pool, and he explains a superstition that some people believed in the first century, probably not the religious leaders, but some people did, and they had this superstition that every once in a while, the water of the pool would kind of bubble up, stir. And they had this superstition that that was actually an unseen angel that came down and stirred the water with one of its wings. And if that happened, then right when that happened, the first person in the pool would be healed. And so that was just a superstition that they believed at the time, which which explains why all these people are hanging around this pool, which is kind of ironic to me if you think about it. So everybody's here, Needing help, they're desperate, they can't walk, they're paralyzed, they're lame, whatever the situation is. And then, to be healed, what is it? It's a race. Okay, it's like, hey, the water's moving. Alright, now, first one in the pool. Which is kind of weird, because it would be the most healthy people that would get in there first. You know, the guy like, yeah, I sprang my wrist on the way to temple this morning, so I'll just swing by. And if the water stirs, bam, I'm diving in. weird. But anyway, so now picking it up in verse 5, here's kind of what happens. So, <clears throat> because of that, if it's in your Bible, it's set off with brackets. And the brackets are telling you, you know, there should be a note somewhere going, hey, this, this, these words actually aren't in the best, most ancient first century manuscripts. And, you know, if they're not, in, in, or it's just missing, all right? Got it? Most people in Jerusalem avoid this area. There's a bunch of people who can't take care of themselves. Some may live in another home. They're just brought there daily as a place to sit and maybe get sunshine, maybe, you know, whatever, if whatever they believe. Other people probably were homeless and just stayed there all the time. But they couldn't take care of themselves. So It was a messy, smelly, bad place. A lot of your Jerusalem elites are not hanging around the pool of Bethesda. We'll pick it up in verse 5. Next verse. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, this seems like a no-brainer, right? It's a simple yes or no question. Do you wish to get well? The guy has been paralyzed for 38 years Laying there in desperation to try to get into this pool. Do you want to get well? But the question's significant. And I got to tell you, as a pastor, I get it. I I think I get it. A lot of times people say, Hey, I believe in God and I'm good with God and all that. And, And they'll have all kinds of problems in their lives. And it really, in some of those things, it just comes down to Well, do you want to get better? Do you want to change? Do you want to get well? Do you want to fix your marriage? And they'll say, well, yeah. But then you'll say, well, then do what God says. Love self-sacrificially, you know, submit, you know, whatever it is. Well, do that. And it's like, well, I, I don't know that I want to do that. Well, then do you want to change? So to me, I think I get it. Curiously, the guy doesn't answer the question. It's a yes or no, right? We expect him to say, hey, do you want to get healed? Yes. yes. He doesn't exactly say, he kind of answers like a college student today. Here's what he says. He says, a sick man answered him in verse 7. Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another, another one steps down before me. Excuses. Verse 8. And Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. And when Jesus said that, immediately the man became well. And he picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. And that becomes significant, the Sabbath. Because what had happened by first century is they took uh, the laws of Moses that Moses wrote, the first five books... And like the Ten Commandments, you know, remember the Sabbath. That's one of the, one of the rules. But it wasn't just that. Then they added a bunch of man-made tradition on top of the law. And in their mind, what they were doing is they were building a fence around the law. So a bunch of rules that so you wouldn't even get close to breaking a law. And what they did is they turned the Sabbath day, which is basically intended by God to say, hey, One day in seven, don't do your normal work. Take a day off. Focus on me. Rest. So they took that, and then they said, okay, he said, don't work. So then they started laying all these, you can't walk a certain distance, you can't carry anything. You can carry some things, but only from a house to a house. and, And just rule after rule after rule. Which meant observing the Sabbath became harder than just going to work every day. Because you had all these rules. And that's what they had done. And so the whole point of the Sabbath was lost and all that. Verse 10 continues. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured. So he goes by some Pharisees. And they're like, it's the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Which is weird because they probably knew that he had been healed. I mean, they're watching Jesus like a hawk at this point after he cleansed the temple. And they know this man's been healed, but they're, and you'd think they'd be going, wow! But they're not. They're like, whoa, 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 this man's carrying his mat. It's the Sabbath. Can't do that. They confront him, they can't get past their tradition. And they actually probably didn't see this because, well, the next verse is tell us that. Verse 11. But he answered them. This is the, the formerly paralyzed guy. He who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed didn't know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in the place. You can imagine when this guy stands up, that He's been around all these people. That causes a commotion. Jesus kind of quietly slips away. And and I got to tell you, as we're going through this, this guy's been healed by Jesus. This is not a nice guy here. And you'll see that. There's nothing really good about this guy. Jesus heals him anyway. Well, that's what he does with us, doesn't it? Well, anyway, verse 14. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So now, later, Jesus reapproaches this guy. Now he's in the temple. Remember, he spent 38 years on the other side of the wall of the temple, hearing everything that's going on in the temple, but never been there. Probably wouldn't have allowed there. And now he goes in to check that out. Jesus sees him in there. Jesus approaches him again. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, this is very interesting, Behold, you've become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse happens to you. Not a lot of times where Jesus heals somebody, then he does a follow-up with them and says, hey, by the way, you better stop what you're doing or something worse is going to happen. And we don't know what the sin was. We know what the worse is. That's an eternity in hell. But I'm thinking the sin was that Jesus is basically warning, warning him, hey, you need to rethink what just happened to you. You're caught up in your circumstances. Hey, you could move. You think all your problems is over. But you're just focused. It's the same thing. You're just focused on the healing. You should think about it a different way. This guy was able to heal me. What does that mean? Who is this guy? It should cause everyone to focus on the identity of who is Jesus kind of a deal. And so Jesus is warning him. And this guy... All through the story is just indifferent, which, he's, which is just a form of rejection. Because right after that, right after Jesus approaches him in the temple, he runs and finds the Pharisees who he knows they're looking to get whoever told him that, and he rats Jesus out. Hey, that guy you're looking to violate, you know, the guy that you got on me for violating the Sabbath, and I told you a guy told me, and I didn't know who it was. It's that guy. Go get him. It's his fault. And he rats Jesus out. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So his only response to Jesus' healing of him and Jesus' warning to him is to report Jesus to the authorities. All through this, this man shows no gratitude, no appreciation, nothing good toward Jesus. And, And basically, this happens every day. Think about our world today, our country. Most people can figure out there's a God, a creator. Most people understand, hey, this world didn't happen by accident. Order never comes from chaos. A perfectly balanced natural system cannot come out of an explosion. Life doesn't come from nowhere. Information in our every DNA cell that we have isn't just like created out of the wind. Most thinking people can understand there's a creator God. The thing is, they don't want there to be a God. Because if there's a creator God and God's created them, then there's, something that, there's someone that they should show gratitude toward. Appreciation. But there's another implication that if you've been made, if you have a creator that made you, then you have an authority in your life, and people don't want an authority in their life. And so they reject him without gratitude. And for those who are rejecting Jesus without gratitude or rejecting him in any way, or they're just indifferent to him, something worse will happen. Something worse than anything you've experienced in your life. And that is an eternity in hell. So people respond with belief or rejection. But as we watch this play out, there's actually another response. And it's the response of hostility. And this is where persecution begins for Jesus. Next verse, 16 says, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Which is kind of interesting because they can't say Jesus broke the Sabbath... Because at other times when he healed, he would touch them or or maybe make a little mud in his hand. But this time he didn't do any of that. He just said it. Get up and go. Well, speaking is not work, so he didn't really violate. But they're getting him on the detail that he told a guy to pick up his mat, and that guy didn't really break the law, but he broke the oral tradition that was around the, the law, and they're persecuting him for that. If you follow, that's kind of messed up. But it's, it's not just that, verse 17. But he answered them, because this is all about what he did on the Sabbath day. He says, my father is working until now, and I myself is, am working. He's basically saying, God sustains the universe. And although he rested on that one day to teach us to rest, God's never off. I mean, it's no work for him, but he sustains everything. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And that is what Jesus is doing. So what follows in the rest of chapter 5 is sort of this running debate, but it's mostly Jesus talking. And he's basically, if we wanted to put it in a nutshell, it would go like this. Hey, you want to know what God would do? Watch me. You want to know what God would say about this? Listen to me. Because he is connecting himself with God. And he keeps doing that. And now the Sabbath breaking is just one. It was just a pretext. Now it's all about blasphemy. And by the way, three years later, they have him crucified for the same thing. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Saying that he was God. It's weird because I I see this happening all the time today, in a sense. We experience the goodness of God all the time. If we're breathing, we're experiencing the goodness of God. God is sustaining every breath that we take, God is good. And we live in a country where everybody gets, we're supposed to be truthful and just. But even all that stuff, that's only in our country. Why? Because the founders of our country actually believed in biblical principles. Not every country is like that. And if you travel around, you'll find that out. That in other countries, it doesn't matter if you're honest or not. It doesn't matter if you're corrupt or not. What matters is who has the most power and who you're offending. But we... Here especially, we experience all this goodness of God. We don't want to thank God. We don't want to acknowledge God as a country, as a whole, in general. We reject him. And and I think what people do is they use to justify that because it's sort of against our nature. To to pretend, make their minds think that there's not a God. They use old worn-out arguments to try to refute the existence of God that don't stand up to any hold any water at all. If you don't believe me, I would love to talk to you about any of those arguments. If you want to have a conversation. But the problem is, most people are just using old worn-out arguments to feel better. About their choice to not acknowledge a God who's in authority over them. And then they still have a conscience. So what they do is they virtue signal. They find some cause or some good thing. And then they, they support that. And then they tell everybody how they're supporting that. So they can feel morally superior to other people. While they're totally rejecting their maker. We see it play out all the time. All around us. And like I said, if you ever want a conversation about that, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. But ultimately, it's Jesus who defends himself. And that's what we see next as chapter 5 continues. He responds to rejection and indifference and hostility with proof. And I kind of read a bunch of verses here, and I'm not going to do that this time because I think I lost first service and we got into this. Let me just say it this way. Well, maybe I'll share a few of them from this rest of chapter 5. You know, first he says, Jesus points out, oh, you want proof? What about John the Baptist? He does that here in uh, verse 33. He says, You, he's talking to religious leaders, you have sent to John, and he testified to the truth. He's talking about something that already happened in John 1 where John the Baptist is out there, a guy in camel hair, you know, eating uh, locusts and wild honey. And he's just, he's, you know, he's, he's just out there doing his own thing. But they see this guy's like a prophet. So they send a delegation from Jerusalem, these guys do, to say, hey, John, who are you? Are, are, you, are you the Messiah? Are you saying you're the Messiah? And if you'll remember, what John said is, no, I'm not the Messiah, but he has shown up. He's here. The Messiah is amongst us right now. So repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know, I mean, that's what he was saying. And then Jesus is just saying, hey, you guys sent to John. You saw him as a prophet. He said I was the Messiah. You didn't believe him. He goes on to say, but the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He's saying he's got a greater witness. And then Jesus points out, Look at everything I'm doing. These are all the signs of the Messiah that we've been waiting for for hundreds of years. But you don't want to see it because it's something that's outside of your little God box. And you don't understand it, so you're rejecting it. And that's exactly what people do today. They reject God because they don't like everything that's in here and so God doesn't fit in the little god box that they've created in their own mind because of all this and they're like oh no i can't believe in a god like that fill in the blank oh i can't believe in a god that but, 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 but. well you got a fake god that you're believing in cuz the real god has revealed himself in the most famous book and the most famous man that ever existed what he's saying. Then he goes on to say, hey, my father, and he keeps hammering this fact that his unity with his father. I and my father are one is kind of how it plays out all through these verses. And then he says, and by the way, your scriptures, which at that time was the Old Testament, the scripture that you love to memorize so much. In verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. He's saying, hey, you've chosen your tradition that you've attached to the written word of God over a live demonstration of God in your midst. That's what he's saying. The entire Old Testament pointed to Jesus. They miss it. He goes on to say that. I wasn't going to do this, but he goes on to say that do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses in whom you've set your hope. He's saying, you think I'm on you? Hey, Moses, the guy you're studying all the time, who wrote the first five books, the ones that you've memorized, he accuses you because he's writing about me. For if you believe Moses, he says, you'd believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They just missed it. There are some who know a lot about the Bible, but they miss they miss Jesus. I've experienced, I've known people who've, and they were Christians, but they would memorize an entire book of the Bible, which I've never done that. A long book, you know, like a gospel. They memorized the whole gospel. But in my experience, the weird thing about it—and these are good people—but then I would, I would bring up something that I knew was in the gospel that they memorized, and I would say, "Well, you know, where it says this, this, and this, and this, because I just read it. You know, not that I have any memory, but yeah, I just, read, just reading about this, this, and this. You know all about that. And they're like, "What? Well, this, this, and this. Where's that at? Uh, I, I, I don't know where that's at. Well." You have this whole, I've heard you, you have this whole book memorized. Yeah, but I can't really answer questions about it. I just know what word comes after another. It's that. Well, you could memorize something but sort of lose the meaning of it. You know what's there, but you don't see why it's there. Happens all the time. And so the question is, what about you? How are you responding to Jesus? Have you responded With belief, because if you have, if you're a believer, sometimes your belief will be tested. Jesus will put you in a dilemma. And it'll be like, okay, I either trust Jesus or I demand something else of him that just shows that I don't trust him. Is that what you're doing? Or maybe you've experienced the goodness of God, and by the way, if you're here, you have but you're indifferent, which is just rejecting him. You really don't want his interference in your daily life. You wanna do your thing. There's no room for Jesus, at least not as an authority. Or are you here also not a believer and you're hostile to the God of the Bible because you don't like what he says? Either way, God loves you. He knows you. He loves you. He proved his love for you. By dying on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died for you personally. And he's asking you to trust him, to take take him at his word, to put your belief in him. And I would encourage you to do that whether you're a believer and you're faced with the next crisis or whether you're not a believer, trust Jesus. Let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness. Lord, thank you for everything that you've done for us. And Father, before we kind of close out with a song, Lord, we need to do a heart check to make sure where we're at with you. Lord, because most of us here, we say we believe you. But sometimes when you throw out a simple test, we don't do so well. Lord, help us to trust you, grow our faith, help us to believe at a deeper level. And Father, for some who are here, uh, they believe you existed, they've experienced your goodness, and they would even say you're good. They're not submitting. They're not following. They've experienced your goodness, but they have not given you their life. Lord, we pray that you would impact their heart, attack their heart, so they would see that, because we all need to see that. And, Father, for those who are hostile, that they would get answers, that they would get through those layers to the heart of who you are to share this message with others. In Christ's name.